Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. First uh, Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 26. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a Revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bo. Those might seem strange passages to put together, but hopefully all will be explained. Uh, just a reminder, uh, in your bulletin, this space each week for you to take notes. Uh, we, we kind of did away during the pandemic with an insert, but uh, take notes. And a reminder, each week we have one point to share. The reason we have that in there is because we want what you learn from God is uh, teaching you. Each Sunday, we continue on to discuss, whether that's after our coffee, after the service, or with your family or others who weren't here at lunch or through the week. So we're thinking about what Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and a God who has revealed yourself and a God who, who has encouraged us to point others to you, to build up, to point to you as the one who saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We pray that as we think about these passages and their application in our lives, that you might strengthen us and help us. Pray, Lord, that for any of us, no matter where uh, we might find ourselves in our journey of faith today, Australian uh, author and preacher John Dixon, in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, tells the story of a friend of his called Emma. Emma was a TV news reporter, a trendy young mother, and when Dixon first met her, an outright atheist. Now, one of their first deep conversations 
She said to him, look, I'm an atheist. I was raised an atheist, so don't even bother trying to convert me. But Emma then came to the baptism of uh, the child of mutual friends. The baptism, as we would do here, was simply part of the regular Sunday service. Emma could count on two fingers the number of church services she had been to over the years, but she said that after that service, she left, quote, struck by the spiritual feeling of it all. She came back the next week, and the next, and the next, and each week she would say the same thing, look, I'm not at all religious, but boy, I like this stuff. And eventually Emma was invited to a course looking at the life of Jesus. She went, and within a, within a couple of months, this atheist had become a passionate and vocal follower of Jesus Christ. And John Dixon writes in his book of how delightfully ironic it was that the humble church service, something Emma would have once mocked, was the means that God used to open her heart and mind to the good news about Jesus Christ and to draw her to faith. As we continue our, our series, uh, sermon series we've been calling This Is Us, thinking about what it means to be the church, what I hope we can come to see today is that what happened to Emma is what God actually wants to happen every time we as the church meet together in gathered worship. Through this series, we've thought quite a bit about what the Bible teaches us about our identity as the local church. We've looked at images such as the church as living stones as a body, as a family, and what the implications of those terms and images are in, in relationship to how we relate to one another. Over and over again, we've seen how the church, the New Testament presents the church in terms of this unity and diversity, how to use John Carson's phrase, which some of you delightfully have started to put back to me, that in light of all of our differences, we are in a sense natural enemies, but natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And so this fellowship of difference, to use that phrase we used at the start of this series, is not an end in itself, but it's intended by God to be the grand witness to the world of the truth and beauty of the gospel. That God would bring all these different kinds of people together into his church. That the church is to be this radical demonstration by God, bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another, whereby we show the world love and justice and forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and life together with God. Along those lines, it's important to keep reminding ourselves that being the church is not just a one-time-a-week exercise. Because church is who we are, not something we do, we're the church 24-7. And we live out that identity, therefore, in two ways, in a gathered way and in a scattered way. We're church when we gather in this building on Sunday mornings or at other times in the week when we come here, but we're still church when we're scattered, whether that's in various growth group meetings that we participate in in one another's homes, or, or meeting in a coffee shop to read the Bible together, or when you're actually just seeking to show God's love to one of your neighbors uh, because they're, they're in need. So we're always the church. But the fact is that if people in Southern Chester County or in Northern Delaware wanted to find out more about us beyond what they could find on the website or on social media, the chances are they would turn up here on a Sunday morning. Maybe that's one or two of you here, the 
this morning. If you've never attended a service at PCKS before, if you've watched a service online or something on social media or a friend told you about this church, and, and here you are. And if that is you, I want to say thank you. You've made our day by setting aside whatever else you could be doing on a Sunday morning and spending this time with us. Thank you. If that is you, here's something you may not have realized before coming here this morning. That in the Bible, God has instructed us as a local church to make you a priority in what we do here this morning. For the rest of us who are regular attenders here, we need to be reminded of this too. God wants us to make visitors a priority in how we conduct our worship services each one of the things that people are often surprised about when they open their Bibles, and in particular in the New Testament, is that it gives us a great deal of freedom when it comes to what we actually do here when we meet together Sunday by Sunday. Part of our tradition as a Presbyterian church is this somewhat technical sounding principle which goes back centuries and which we seek to follow. It's called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship states that Christians should not do anything in gathered worship unless there's some warrant for it in the Bible. So the reason that each Sunday we have singing and praying and scripture reading and preaching and sacraments is because we see those elements practiced in the New Testament churches. But the regulative principle importantly makes a distinction between these biblical elements of worship and what are called the circumstances of that is, the particular ways in which we actually do the elements. So the Bible doesn't prescribe or even address many of these circumstantial practical considerations. It doesn't indicate the level of formality or informality, the predictability of the service. It doesn't address the length of the service or how much time is allotted to each section of the service. It doesn't tell the preacher what he should wear on a Sunday morning. There's no prescription regarding the musical instruments or the types of songs that we sing. There's no set order of service. So that on the circumstances of worship, the New Testament is essentially silent. Or to put that in a slightly different way, there's no equivalent to the Old Testament book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Those of you who have persevered through Leviticus, whether reading it or some of you may recall the sermon series four years ago we did, you'll recall, recall that Leviticus lays out in unbelievable detail what should happen in Old Covenant worship ritual. But nothing exists like that for us. What that means is that beyond the elements of worship that I just mentioned, we have to do some work on what the circumstances or the shape of our worship should look like. So, so the question is, how do we make decisions about music styles, the order of service? What determines for us the level of tradition or formality? The natural inclination for each of us is to want those circumstances of worship to basically align in some manner with our own personal preferences, the kind of music that we like, the level of formality or informality, the length of sermons. The problem with that is that our personal preferences clash with each other. And so we have to raise the discussion up a level and say, okay, we do have a great deal of freedom here when it comes to gathering worship, but are there any criteria given in the Bible that can help us develop a rationale for why we do what we do? 
and that brings us back to Amber. I'm going to suggest that there's at least one criterion that we easily forget, and it's this, that God expects, expects our worship to be evangelist in the sense that it isn't to be geared for the benefit only of those of us who are already followers of Jesus, but also for the benefit of those who are not yet followers of Jesus. That the church is to be intentional with the circumstances of her services, such that the not yet followers of Jesus feel welcomed and encouraged to be here. It's made it a few moments ago, some of you here may fall into that category of person, you're an Emma, Guy and Emmett, I, I hope I hope that you'll not mind kind of be giving you as well as all of us a bit of a behind the scenes look today of what the Bible says about how those of us who are members and regular attenders should think about one of the ways that we can be hospitable to you today and indeed every Sunday. Indeed, we're, we're going to think about that by looking somewhat briefly at the two passages from the Bible that Bo read for us, and then seeking to tease out the implications of that for us today from those passages. That's a very long introduction. Here's our sermon in the sentence in a sentence today that when the church worships together, we're to worship expecting others to be listening in. The church worships together, we're to worship expecting others to be listening in. So let's look again at uh, Psalm 96, verses 1 to 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. All the way back, as far as the Psalms of the ancient of ancient Israel, God intended the worship of his people to be within earshot of people who did not believe, people like Emma. So God's people here, the psalmist says, were to declare God's glory, his marvelous deeds, so that others would hear of those things. A few verses later, in fact, in the psalm, the psalmist directly addresses those who were outside God's covenant family, verses 7 to 9. Ascribe to the Lord of families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. But those who did not follow God, were invited to come into God's courts and to join in the worship of the one true God. And that might sound to some of us as, a, an Arab, as arrogant, as insulting or intolerant to other religions or worldviews. Come and worship the God we worship. But the Bible from start to finish affirms that there is only one true God who has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ. And if, therefore there is only one God and the eternal destiny of each one of us depends on our relationship with this God, then genuine loving hospitality would demand that we would invite others to join with us in the worship of this God. So since the beginning, since the time of the Old Testament, when God's people worship together, all along we're to be worshiping, expecting others to we look at what the Apostle Paul writes in his first letter to the church in Corinth, we see the Apostle thinking along similar lines to the psalmist. So listen again to 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 26. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, 
and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a topic, an interpretation, let all things be done for glory. Paul, in this wider passage in this chapter, is addressing the misuse of the gift, spiritual gift of tongues. The tendency of many people when they turn to this passage is to just get bogged down in the debate about what exactly are the tongues and the prophecy that Paul is talking about here. I'm not going to get into that debate today except to point out one thing about what Paul seems to be implying when he talks about prophecy. Paul spends the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians 14 advocating for what he calls prophecy. And then he wraps up his case with verse 26. He says, when you come together, here are the kinds of things you should be doing. Hymns and lessons and so on. But there's actually no mention of prophecy in that list, which seems somewhat strange, except that I think Paul is saying all these different word ministries function as prophecy, or at least share the same purpose as prophecy, which Paul has expressed back in verse 3 of the same chapter, the function of the purpose of prophecy being strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. So that prophecy, prophesying here seems to be Paul's catch-all phrase for a range of Congregational word ministries, declarations intended to edify and strengthen the church. Now, with that in mind, look again at what Paul says in verses 24 to 25. Paul complains to the Corinthians that if an Emma or an Emmet were to enter a worship service and hear people speaking in tongues without, I think he, he's implying, without an interpretation, they will think that these Christians are out of their minds. He insists that Christians, therefore, should change the way they do things in gathered worship so that the service is understandable to the unbelievers there. Then, so then if, if an Emma or an Emmet were to come into the service and the worship is being done for edification of everybody, then Paul says that unbeliever will be convicted and called to account by everything he or she does. How does that happen? Paul says, well, it happens as the secrets of his heart are disclosed. That may mean that that an Emmet realizes that the worshippers around him are finding in God what his heart is secretly longing for, but in the wrong ways. Or it may mean that the worship shows someone like Emma just how her heart works. But the reason is that he or she, the, the result is that he or she is moved for the first time in their life, Paul says, to worship God. Worship, Paul says, is to be done in such a way that it both edifies believers and it evangelizes them. To this quote of these verses from another Australian, Paul Barnett, who says, Despite all efforts to devise programs for evangelism and outreach, the gathered congregation in his life and ministry remains a potent force for gathering in the outsider. Churches and ministers, however, must ensure that the word of the Lord is intelligible and powerfully taught so that the visitor will indeed say, God is with you. Church worships together, to worship, expecting others. I want to spend the last section of the sermon just applying this through three points that we can draw from these verses in 1 Corinthians 14. And here's the first application point. We should expect Emma's and Emma's to be present at our gathered worship. Paul doesn't tell us here in this passage. 
passage how these unbelievers ended up being at these worship services. They may just have wandered in, but if first century Corinth was anything like 21st century Kenneth Square, the unbelievers were probably there because someone invited them. And the same principle was at work in Psalm 96. The nations are directly invited, asked to come and worship God. So there's a challenge here for each of us to say, well, who am I invited to church? And if I'm not currently actually practically inviting anyone to church, who am I praying about? Who are the Emmas and the Emmets in your life that you could invite to come along with you to a church service on an upcoming Sunday? This isn't so much about growing numerically as a church as it is just about doing what both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us to do, inviting unbelievers to come and worship the living God. But the second application point, which is related to the first, is this, that unbelievers should find our services both comprehensible and welcoming. Paul directly tells this local congregation in Carthage to adapt its worship because of the presence of unbelievers in it. This instruction isn't so much that to make the unbeliever comfortable, Sense the gospel itself makes the unbeliever uncomfortable as it exposes our sin, but that the worship needs to be intelligible to them. We're to address the secrets of the unbeliever's heart, Paul says in verse 25. That means that we need to be constantly reminding ourselves what it's like not to believe. We have to be putting ourselves in Emma and Emma's shoes. We have to be reminding ourselves what an unbelieving heart is like as we craft our service, as we corporately worship. So we have to ask ourselves, are our worship services intelligible to unbelievers? Do they, would they draw people like an Emma or an Emma back to want to come back? And I recognize much of that falls on those who are leading and those who are preaching. Tim Keller talks about the importance of worship and preaching in the vernacular. We need to avoid as much as possible Christian jargon. We need to explain basic theological concepts like why we confess sin, why we praise and give thanksgiving. That in preaching we need to show continual willingness to address the questions and the objections and the concerns with the greatest respect and sympathy of those who are skeptical or seeking. My aim, and I confess it, some weeks I do it better than others, is to try to articulate the skeptics' objections to Christian living and belief better than they can actually do it themselves. Objections like, I've tried religion before and it didn't work. I don't see how my life could be the result of a plan of a loving God. Christianity just is a straitjacket. That as the preacher seeks to address objections, it helps people like Emma have a sense that she's welcome here, that she's seen, that she's understood here. It also helps the rest of us uh, be better equipped to face the objections of people we might know at work or amongst our friends. But in, in addition to the preaching, we need to think about the unbeliever when it comes to other aspects of worship. For example, the music. When we think about music, we want to think about its aesthetic quality, but also about its accessibility. Are the words easily understood? Would a person coming here for the first time struggle to understand what the song is saying? The church worships together, we're to worship expecting others to be listening. 
So we need to be asking questions about the language in worship, music in worship, but there are also questions, of course, for all of us, not just those up front, all of us in terms of how we behave in worship. We've talked about this extensively before, whether it's been what we call the ministry of the pew, or through that little book that many of you have read called How to Walk into Church. Huge part of the ministry of the pew relates to how we engage with visitors or newcomers. All of us enjoy meeting our friends at church, but we have a responsibility, first and foremost, to be hospitable hosts each Sunday. And we should, so we should always be on the lookout for newcomers in order that we might be as welcoming as possible to them. And then after welcoming them, the, the hospitality continues during the service, if you notice that they don't have an order of service, or if they arrive a little late with their children and need to find, need to know how to find a nursery. It's not just the responsibility of the ushers in the back to help them. We should all be looking to help people uh, who come as our guests. And even your active listening and hearty singing is a way of ministering to everyone around you, including any visitors. People who come who aren't yet followers of Jesus will pick up that what is being said and sung might just be worth listening to if they see rows of regular attenders around them fully engaged. And then after service, the, the, the same principle applies as before the service, before seeking out your friends or someone that you just have to discuss a certain church matter about. Be sure to be a good host and make yourself available to the newcomer. And here's the interesting thing about all this. The more we make our worship service intelligible and welcoming to the outsider, the more likely my first application point is going to happen. We're going to each feel more inclined to invite our friends to come along. If you sense that our worship service will be attractive to your unbelieving friends, you're much more likely to ask them to attend with so every week we should be worshiping as if there are dozens of Emmas and Emmets here, whether there are or not. Because if we worship as if they are here, eventually they will be here and they are. Christians worship together to worship, expecting others to be listening. Lastly, Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 14 that we should expect unbelievers to fall under conviction be converted through our gathering worship. Let me suggest that key to unbelieving people becoming devoted followers of Jesus Christ is that we preach the gospel of grace week by week. One frequent objection to all of this by Christians is, is this. They say, you know, if we're constantly aiming at evangelism in our service and in the sermon, we'll, we'll just get bored. And there's truth to that. But equally true is the fact that if we aim each week at just educating believers, then we'll bore and confuse the unbelievers. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that in the same service, we're to edify believers and evangelize the unbelievers at the same time. You say, how do we do that? We do that by preaching and singing and celebrating the gospel. The one message that both believers and unbelievers need to hear all the time is that salvation and our adoption as children of God is by grace alone. The great slogans of the Reformation that we celebrate today. The 
But the gospel of grace is not just the way we get into the kingdom of God, it's also the way we get on to the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, as Tim Keller was fond of saying, not just the ABC of the Christian life, it's the A to Z or Z, I guess, as you said, the A to Z of the Christian life. Listen to how Paul expresses this in another of his letters, Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared. He's talking about Jesus there. Bringing salvation for all people. There's the evangelistic thrust. Then training, here's the equipping, here's the edifying, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. God's gospel of grace not only brings us into the kingdom, but it's this gospel that's the growth engine in the Christian life. The unbeliever who comes under conviction, the gospel is the greatest news possible because the life and death of Jesus Christ in her place offers forgiveness for her past, it offers hope for her future, it gives meaning in the present. But for the believer, it's the answer to every struggle we face, whatever it is, whatever you're dealing with today. And whether we're struggling, for example, with suffering, or with rejection, or with temptation, or with honesty, or integrity, laziness, pride, self-righteousness, you name it, the way out of that, that God is going to take you, is going to go through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way out of it will take you, for example, to the temptations that He faced for you, and the suffering and death that He endured for you, and the humility that He showed on all so that you might be declared right with God and the Son and Daughter or Father of God. And the believer's response each time we hear the gospel proclaimed and we pray the gospel and we sing the gospel is Jesus, if you could do that for me, then this week by your Spirit, may you equip me to do that for you. Every week we remind ourselves of the gospel of grace here. If we aim primarily at evangelism for believers, if primarily in education, we'll bore and confuse unbelievers, but if we aim each week at praising the God who saves by grace, we'll both edify insiders and evangelize outsiders. As I said at the beginning of the service, I need to remind you that today is Halloween. However, let me remind you that that word is a shortened version of All Hallows' Eve, day in the Christian calendar Day or All Saints' Day, on which we give thanks to God for all the believers who have gone before us. That whole derivation is totally lost in our society today, but it needs to not be lost anymore. Because there are generations of saints who have preceded us here at PCKS who worshiped together, expecting others to be listening. Indeed, it might be the case that that's part of the reason why some of us are even here today, because we came on Sunday listening in before we were followers of Jesus Christ. God calls on us, as this generation of believers of PCKS, to continue in practice. That as we worship together, we're to worship expecting others to be listening in.
not only do you call us to praise you because you are worthy of our praise, but to do it in such a way that others might hear that praise and witness what we, uh, how we treat one another, how we uh, encourage one another, and how we look to you for all our needs, and that through that they might come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be not only intelligible and welcoming, but give us a new impetus to be inviting others to come worship the one living God, for you are worthy of all praise and honor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us.